monetizing digital services since 2004, boosting the entertainment industry by making digital content accessible for everyone. AWG, where innovation meets monetization. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development, where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. If you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent UVU Ethics Awareness Week panel discussion titled Corporate Social Responsibility, What Do Businesses Owe Society? to the afternoon session sponsored by the Woodbury School of Business and the Center for the Study of Ethics. Today's session is titled Corporate Social Responsibility, What Do Businesses Owe Society? And we do have pre-prepared questions uh, that I'll introduce the panelists here in just a moment and we'll go through some of our prepared questions. But we also want to leave a significant amount of time for questions from the audience. So please take note uh, of any questions you have along the way, and we'll try to leave 20 to 30 minutes even towards the end just to take audience questions. Before we get started, I just wanted to introduce everybody. Starting at the end of the table, Sylvia Clark is Assistant Professor of Organizational Leadership. She teaches in our HR program. Dr. Jeff Peterson, sorry, Dr. Sylvia Clark, Dr. Jeff Peterson is Associate Professor of Business Management in the Organizational Leadership Department and the Academic director of the MBA program in the Woodbury School of Business. Dana Oakes is a professional in residence in the Woodbury School of Business and Healthcare Administration, recently joined our faculty uh, and left a CEO position of a major healthcare um, hospital system. Jill Jasperson next to me, Dr. Jill Jasperson, is a professor of organizational leadership and teaches our corporate social responsibility and ethical decision-making courses in the School of Business. And my name is Dr. John Westover. I am chair of the Department of Organizational Leadership and a professor in that department. I teach HR, OD types of courses. Without further ado, we're going to dive right on into the questions. And I asked each of the panelists to, uh, to organize their thoughts around questions within their own individual disciplines. Uh, Dr. Peterson teaches, often teaches ethical decision-making in the MBA program. And I know he has a lot of thoughts around kind of the broader understanding, theoretical understanding and philosophical understanding of this question, what do we owe society? So we're going to start with Jeff, and he's going to start us off a little bit more generally, and then we'll narrow in and talk 
about more specifics within the disciplines of each of our panelists. And after I address each individual panelist with their questions, we'll open it up to the entire panel so that they can also respond to other panelists' comments if they so choose. So starting with Jeff, would you please start us by explaining, by explaining to us the classical view of corporate social responsibility and what it says about business's duty to society and then what does stakeholder theory say about corporate social responsibility and how do we rec uh, reconcile that with that classical view? Thanks, John. Um, this is really kind of an interesting area because these, these two philosophies kind of are um, polar opposites of each other. Uh, they're still very much based in, in the idea of uh, capitalism and the capitalist system. And so I wanted to start talking a little briefly about kind of some underlying assumptions that come from capitalism. So, so one of the most important uh, ideas in capitalism is this idea of private property. So most of us probably just assume that private property is just a normal thing, but when you get into societies uh, that are socialist or, or communist, that idea of, of private property doesn't exist. And so private property means that I have the right to possess and control certain things and the government or other people have no right to do anything with that property. That's mine to do with as I want. Uh, the second piece that goes into this is what we call agency theory. So agency theory basically says that a person can act as an agent for another person so they can be their representative. So for example, Jill could be my attorney, so Jill would be representing me. So a key part of agency theory says that the agent needs to act in the best interest of the person that they're representing. So even if there was something that Jill could do that would benefit her personally, she would need to do what benefited me the most instead of what benefited her. And so that's why we, we often call that the fiduciary responsibility, is to act on somebody else's behalf even if it goes contrary to your own. So this kind of takes us then into the, the classical view of um, corporate responsibility. And uh, I'm just going to read you this. I want to make sure I got it right because this is Milton Friedman, who is one of the, uh, the, the, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist. And so this is his definition of what the, the classical view of uh, corporate social responsibility is. He says, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deceit or fraud. So this is a very kind of straight ahead view of this. So from the classical view, we would say, um, so again, I have capital. What I've done is I've, I've got this find somebody else who says, I have these really great ideas, but I don't have any money to do that. So I give them my money to go do something with that. So they start the business, they pay themselves a salary. That takes away from the profit that I would receive from having given you that money. And Friedman would argue, if I really cared about the environment, I could take some of my money and instead of giving it to the corporation, give it directly to an environmental place that's going to work on that kind of stuff. So um, the, the classical view actually argues, not only do you have no responsibility to do anything that is not in the interest of creating more profit, you're actually stealing somebody else's money by doing things that aren't resulting in profit coming out. So that's a very hard line kind of uh, view of that. Um, and not everybody has agreed with that. So 
Um, there are some, some criticisms for uh, the classical view, so the first of which is, you know, uh, private property, the, the assumption that we have an unlimited and unmitigated right to control our own private property is, is not true, right? So there are a lot of things that we can't do with our private property. So just because it's your own private property doesn't mean you have absolute control over that. So, and then, you know, again, looking at it from the kind of fiduciary responsibility, um, this makes kind of an underlying assumption that profit is actually the best in your best interest. That's the only thing in your best interest is for you to have profit. So you could make that argument, well, if you're providing me with profit and yet polluting the air so that I end up getting cancer, you're actually not in my best interest. So, so those are some kind of limitations to, to um, uh, the classical view. But it's a, it's a, very, um, um, a very common view. So when Steve Jobs was CEO of Apple, Apple did virtually no philanthropic kind of stuff because that was Steve Jobs' view as he said, you gave me your money so that I could do things with it and return profit to you. If I'm doing anything else, I'm stealing your money. So Tim Cook today does not have Steve Jobs' view, so it's a very different kind of uh, view. So, so maybe then I'll transition into talking the, the difference between that and stakeholder theory. So when we talk about the, the capital that somebody's putting in, that would make me the, the stockholder. right? So, so it used to be that everybody said the reason that corporations exist is to provide value to stockholders. That was the line for a long time. People started to realize, well, there are a lot of people who actually have an interest in what a business is doing besides the people who own the stock. And so this gave rise to what we call stakeholder theory. So there are actually two different versions of stakeholder theory. There's uh, the, the narrow view of stakeholder theory, which says that a stakeholder is anybody on whom the organization relies to be successful. So I couldn't have a company if I didn't have employees, if I didn't have management, if I didn't have the investors, uh, if I didn't have uh, you know, customers, what it, all those kinds of things, those are things that I have to have. The broad view says a stakeholder is anybody who has any kind of interest in the organization. So for example, if I'm going into a small town somewhere and opening a Walmart, um, the other businesses that are around there that likely will be put out of business, they're not necessary to me as Walmart, but they could still be considered to be stakeholders in that, uh, that decision, right? So, so the first thing you have to do with stakeholder theory is decide, am I going to take the broad view where it's anybody who potentially is affected by or interested in my company, or I'm going to take the narrow view just to say I'm only, I only care about the people who are necessary for the survival of this organization. So um, then the, what comes down to is you're, you're having to say, I've got these stakeholders, so now I have the, the, the choice of how do I satisfy all the stakeholders. So it's much more complicated because now I've got employees and I have customers and I have suppliers and all that, and I have to try to figure out how to balance those. So if I were to give all of my employees a large raise, that would cut into my profits, and now I've taken that away from my investors. Right? Or if I'm giving my investors a huge return and not uh, taking care of my employees, they might end up on you know, government assistance or things like that. So I'm always trying to find this fine balance. So the, one of the biggest problems with stakeholder theory is it's a wonderful lens to look through to try to figure out what we should, you know, how to balance these, but it doesn't actually give you any guidance to know which of those should I weigh more heavily or how do I balance all of these kinds of things. So um, what 
and kind of that last part of the question they're asking, how do you reconcile those? This is the challenge that we have is uh, there's nothing to say that one, uh, that uh, the classical view or stakeholder theory is any more right than the other. And it really comes down to what each person kind of believes and what's their philosophical approach to it. So as I mentioned, Steve Jobs, definitely the classical view. Today, Tim Cook, you know, they're, they're working very hard to, uh, you know, make products that are environmentally friendly. They, you know, they, they build large solar farms. They're very much into the LGBT promotion kind of area. So, and, and again, you could look at that and say, well, wouldn't it be better if they didn't do that and let people spend their money? But people invest money in Apple partly because of that. So, so as long as they understand that this is what Apple's going to do with my money, they may say, I would rather buy an Apple iPhone knowing that they're helping out you know, certain populations that I'm concerned about than buying an Android where I don't have that same kind of a thing. So uh, unfortunately, that's the bad news is there isn't really a lot of guidance in that. But, but what you should do is you should have some kind of an overarching philosophy where you understand um, you know, this is how we're going to approach things. We're going to approach things by saying, we're a business. We're here to make money. Uh, that's what we're going to worry about, let people spend their money somewhere else. Or you can say, we want to be very responsible to, uh, to various different kinds of things. And the people who are like-minded to us will put money into us and uh, will do things. So um, that's kind of how those two things work. And so unfortunately, we can't really say you know, for, us, for certain, here's what businesses owe society, because it's a range from just don't break the law, <laughs> um, don't commit fraud, compete fairly. As long as you do that, you just make money. And that's all you have to do. The other side where you have to say, you know, if, if I do more of this, am I going to hurt one of these other groups? And what's the right way to balance those? So it can be a much more complex kind of thing, but uh, having that philosophy kind of really helps. So, Yeah, thank you for that overview, Jeff. Um, another way of framing it that you might, you might have heard, people refer to it as shareholder capitalism or stakeholder capitalism. Um, you may have heard about the triple bottom line as an approach towards how organizations are expected to give value back to society. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to frame it, uh, and Jeff laid out, I think, a pretty good explanation of the, the tension that comes uh, when we're trying to wrestle uh, with those different priorities. Uh, any response from any of the other panelists to Jeff and, and that overview? I have a question. How do um, people, how are they going to be able to pay attention if they do have a lot of interests that they want met? How, how are we going to know this? Do we have to be very, you know, I just have this money, I want to invest. Is it going to be hard or easy? Well, so... so for doing this, you know, the stakeholders... I, I don't want to drift too far into <laughs> politics, right? So, but that's one of the things that some of you are probably familiar with this ESG kind of thing that's going on where they now look at countries and they have scores about how kind of environmentally and, and kind of the bad news is, for example, Sri Lanka had the, the highest ESG score in, in the world and their economy has essentially collapsed because they're, they're, they don't have food for people, they don't have energy, all these kinds of things have gone up. So, so if you really want, if it really matters to you, um, you have to go to, um, you know, the 10K reports of, of companies, look that up and see what they're doing. But the problem for me is, like, uh, let's say I, 
and it's not true, but let's say I, I didn't care at all about the environment. I think that's a stupid thing to worry about because it's, you know, whatever, right? So I like Apple because Apple's making a lot of money. So I can't, like, separate that out. I have to invest in Apple knowing what it's doing, even, even if I believe Apple would be more profitable if they weren't investing in those things. And so there are definitely people who say, I want to invest in certain kinds of funds uh, and companies because those companies are promoting things that I care about. And so, you know, you can go to your broker and say, I want to find environmentally supportive, um, you know, companies to my, invest my money in and put your money into those. And there is actually now, just recently in this past year, there have been the opposite of, of companies who are coming up or saying, these are companies who are just focused on doing business and staying out of politics and doing other stuff. And that opens up somewhere for somebody to say, I want to invest somewhere where I don't have to worry about what somebody's politics are just that they're trying to do the best thing with my money that they could. So. Sure. All right. So coming not from academics, but from, uh, from the private sector for many, many years in a publicly traded healthcare company, our mission, I believed strongly in the mission, and we'll get to that. I think there's another question that will deal with that. But large, gigantic corporations – um, are swaying smaller public corporations to do their bidding in certain ways. So we could say that being environmentally friendly, having good social governance structures are good for business. But the voice of what's good for business has always been the people up through their legislative representatives to regulate that. So, for example, Congress makes a law that they want to uh, influence the way certain things are done in business. We have a whole slew of antitrust laws in the United States, right? It's because we want to prevent mm -hmm. giant corporations from handling too much power, from gaining monopoly power and therefore exerting their will and demanding their price that then everybody else has to pay, which flows more money into few people and the power grows exponentially like that. And so um, we have antitrust laws. Those came from we the people. We decided that we were going to talk to our elected representatives, our elected representatives saw the need for this, they legislated that. Then what happens is, of course, that's enforced through the enforcement, the agencies, which are under the executive branch. So in healthcare, we had a massive amount of regulation. So that was through the Department of Health and Human Services. They regulated through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which paid the bills. If you didn't do what CMS said you needed to do, in the private industry, they would withhold payment from you. They could do that because there was a whole lot of government pay and paying in the private sector. So they had a lot of, of power over that. Now, that's an introduction to say we, historically, as a people, have decided that we wanted to make sure that there were checks and balances on the private sector, okay? Well, what's going on now is we have some banks. And you remember the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of the big banks owned what were called mortgage-backed securities. Those mortgage-backed securities, maybe uh, a lot of those mortgages were written up in kind of dubious ways. Anybody could start. I remember living in California. I had just come out of graduate school. I came out of my MBA, got one of the, the top offer, at least in my sector, went to California, and couldn't afford to put a roof over my family's head. Had to pay rent. I was disturbed by that. Went to talk to some mortgage people, and they said, oh, well, no problem. You can do what's called a stated income loan. Anybody heard of that? 
All right, so you're, some of you are familiar with this. Some of you, it's like ancient history. Who is this dude who's so old telling us this stuff? <laughs> but this was very real to me and painful. So I said, wait, you're telling me that I just have to say I make X amount of dollars and you're going to approve this loan? That's right. It's at a slightly higher interest rate. So I'm lying. Well, no, we, you just state your income. So I'm lying. No, you just state your income. Well, it was lying. In effect, people could put whatever they wanted on their income, get a loan, and then those loans started to adjust or people started losing jobs, and the whole house of cards imploded. And we were left with all of these massive investment banks that had done those deals not being able to fund all kinds of other things. And a huge amount of the wealth, all these people that had retirement accounts, everything, going down the tubes. We decided as a country we didn't want that to happen, so we were going to regulate more, and we came up with a bunch more regulations on the banks. Well, today, so these banks now, some of them have amassed far more wealth. Some of them have been born after that and have come up with wealth. So you need to know one bank called BlackRock has $10 trillion of assets. The amount of the United States gross domestic product is about $24 trillion. Vanguard, $7.7 trillion. So you put that together in State Street, those three banks have as much as the United States gross domestic product. Now, they're pushing you know, certain things onto companies and saying, we want you to, to go with this that we think is good stakeholder engagement. We want you to do this and this and this, and we're going to kind of give you our gold seal, which means we're going to invest, we're going to have funds that invest in you as a company. We're going to buy your Apple stock. Because Tim Cook, maybe it's not just Tim Cook that he is like an environmentally conscious guy. Tim knows it's good for business. And he wants BlackRock or others, Vanguard, to create funds that invest in Apple, which makes his share price go up. And guess who's probably one of the larger individual shareholders in Apple? Tim Cook. So this makes him a wealthier person. So I want to make sure that we don't have the impression that there aren't people that hands aren't getting a little more wealthy with the things that are sold as being environmentally friendly or good governance or good social practices. People can be getting awfully wealthy by selling and doing some of these things that may not be producing uh, the kinds of things that we hope. Even if we're great environmentally and believe that that's a pure motive, um, there's a term called greenwashing, which means that you know, people can kind of be saying they're doing things and not really. So we the people, again, have not liked in the United States. We, we opted not to have a key from off on the sidelines and create regulation. Even if you agree with the legislation that they're sort of promoting at this time as being friendly to environment, friendly to the things that you like, be careful if that switches and somebody gets their own, you know, personal ambition about it. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Sylvia, Jill, would you like to respond? I'm good. I, I'm going to respond in my, okay. in my little... All right. Well, let's move on then. Um, next question is for Sylvia, Dr. Clark, who comes to this from an HR organizational perspective. To what extent should organizations emphasize social responsibility in the hiring process and the reward process for employees um, to in acting responsibly, punishing or removing people who don't act socially responsibly, et cetera. And what do you see as the advantages of including human resource management in the development of an organization's corporate social responsibility strategy? 
Great. Thank you, John. Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Sylvia Clark, and I teach um, human resource management at um, the Woodbury School of Business. So Dr. Peterson already mentioned stakeholder theory earlier. So um, he basically said that a stakeholder is everybody who has an interest in the organization and who can make an organization successful. So I'm interested in a specific type of stakeholder, which are employees, right? So employees, they are really important. In our HR classes, we teach that employees are the most important asset of organizations because they can make us fail or they can make us succeed. Because without employees, we can't produce our products. We can't pro deliver our services. So employees are really important. So when we think of corporate social responsibility, we have to think beyond uh, how it can benefit the communities. That's, that, that's what we think of currently in terms of how can we support the community. We also have to think of how can we support our human resources. So um, if you just think of one function of human resource management, so let's say recruiting, for example, right? If you imagine the following scenario, so you are hiring for a new position, so for, you're hiring someone new for a position, so you have a really strong candidate, someone you consider to be a strong candidate. The interview is going well. You've talked about the really great benefit package that your organization has to offer. You highlight the, the development opportunities within the organization. You mention some of the things that the organization does that support a, a life, a work-life balance. So, in in your in your mind, you you go through your mental checklist, right? You think that you've covered pretty much everything that convinced this new, this potentially new employee to join your your company. But the truth is, if you have not, um, if you're if um, what you just talked about, if, you, if it didn't cover your strong commitment to corporate social responsibility, then there's actually a 50% chance that that, that's, that strong candidate will walk out the door and never look back. So we know from research that corporate social responsibility is really important. It ties together human resources and how you can, how you can hire and retain employees, how you can hire your talent, how you can retain your talent. So um, we know from a study that 67% of all millennials, and I'm guessing that most of you in here are millennials, they said in a survey that they would never work for an organization that does not have a strong commitment to corporate social responsibility. We also know that 76% of those millennials, they would work for a company with a strong commitment to social uh, to corporate social responsibility, even if the pay was lower than in a, at a different company. And then our future workforce, which is Generation C, right? Those are the really young people, the 14 to 22. Do we have any of those in here by any chance? So we do have Generation C in here. So you guys, you, you, even, you even say that you feel partially responsible for making this world a better place. So you want to have the support it takes for you to do that. So we know this is important. We know you have to appeal to the needs and the wants of our employees. So um, my question is, how can we do that as an organization? How important should this be in our recruitment process? 
how can we reward employees for acting in alignment with our corporate social responsibility strategy? Should we even punish people who don't? Should we let go of those people? And how can human resources accelerate the, the trend in this, in this area? So those are my questions for the panel, but also I guess we, have, we answer questions from you guys at the end, but if you want to join in, please do so. Where leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. This is where the brightest minds in business come together. Add your unique voice to an exceptional peer group. Come learn from others' diverse perspectives and from our world-class faculty. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Yeah, excellent questions. I think you asked more questions than you responded to initially, but that's good because this is complicated. Uh, it's, it's certainly complex. And one of the, as you were describing that, um, I was thinking about, you know, something that I say often uh, to students is, because uh, I'm also in the, I'm in the same department. I'm in the same program in the same space. I have a bias towards the human-centric organization, people-centric organizations. Um, that's my stated bias. I have a stated bias towards, you know, corporate social responsibility, social impact in the community. Those sorts of things to me are very important, uh, and I I'm of the belief that they should be important to organizations and leaders as well. Um, it, but it's, there's not like a dichotomy, and I think sometimes we talk about this, especially when we're talking about the classical approach shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder theory, stakeholder capitalism, like it doesn't have to be either or. And I think that's how we tend to think about things. Um, but there's often a both and to, to these types of questions. And I, t I think about like the business case behind why we make certain, you know, we have strategies or make certain decisions within organizations. There's a business case behind it. We need to be profitable. We need to keep the doors open. We need to be able to pay make payroll. All of that needs to happen. Otherwise, the, the business doesn't exist and it doesn't employ people and it doesn't provide products or services or, or provide value to the market. Um, so all of that's important. There's a business case for everything that we do and there should be. But there's also a human case for everything that we do. Um, and th they don't need to be mutually exclusive. And in fact, when you, I, I'm of the belief when, when you focus on the human case, it will naturally, most of the time, naturally reinforce the business case and allow you to be more profitable. It, it will allow you, for example, in HR, in the HR world, when you have, you know, w when we look at millennials or Gen Z workers, uh, and we know that they want to make a difference in society, we know that they, they are driven by purpose and meaning and they want to make a contribution, if we can design work in such a way that we can attract those people, not only will they be giving their talents to the organization to help the organization succeed, um, but as we support them, they're going to stick around, so we're going to retain them. And as we retain good people, um, that's going to allow us to be more profitable and, and allow us to be more innovative and to provide better products and services to the market. So the two can be mutually reinforcing um, if we're thoughtful about how we do it. And I think, unfortunately... Too often we, we break it into this false dichotomy of, oh, you know, if we invest in our people, if we invest in our employees, that's going to cut into our profits and therefore it's going to hurt the company. Um, 
thoughts on on that or or any other responses to Sylvia's other questions? So yeah, I agree. Um, I agree 100 percent. The one caveat that I was placing on it is it's got to be driven by business to be able to see what they're doing, not driven by a big agenda of banks pushing on businesses to say this is our agenda across, you know, three banks or whatever to do what government can't do. That That is frightening, and that is actually happening when you mentioned ESG, um, because we might all agree environmental social governance sounds really good, but if it's certain small groups of people doing that uh, and withholding capital from some companies and they're not getting access to capital, that's frightening. But that may have been a divergence. Um, so to get back to the question of the traditional versus the stakeholder, I've, I feel like as a CEO, it was absolutely imperative that I took care of my people. So in the healthcare business, it's 100% of people business. That's what we do. And coming out of the pandemic, um, everybody wants to know how are we going to recruit and retain our workers. That's the biggest deal. And you have to do it in a way that still makes money. Healthcare was born out of um, this, this kind of mission of taking care of people, and often it was a clerical mission. So the Catholic sisters that had a lot of, gave birth to a lot of hospitals, and it was a wonderful mission. I was at Ogden Regional, which came out of a, a group of sisters from the Midwest, and the sisters were still around when I was there as a chief operating officer just here in the state of Utah. And the saying that they had was no margin, no mission. That makes an awful lot of sense, right? If you, if you stop having a positive margin, you can't reinvest in tools and equipment to do the job. You can't reinvest in hiring people. If you want a new service line to treat this out of the other and you don't have capital or money to do it, you're not going anywhere. So there's a virtuous cycle in that. But if you don't take care of your people, your turnover costs a lot of money. So one of the big things that I did was make sure that there were avenues and venues where I could keep ears out. I used to walk around all the time and just have personal conversations with as many people as I possibly could, get the temperature of the organization. How are you doing? What would you like to do? What are things that we could do? We had birthday lunches and this type of engagement program and that. And I was thrilled the other day on a hike up, um, I was up Provo Canyon, and there's that Timpanogos Park. Some of you may be familiar with it. They do the storytelling thing there, you know. So I'm back in town. I haven't been here for many years and I, it's the first time I've really seen that park all developed and there was a tech company they were all wearing these t-shirts and I don't remember the name of the tech company but they were having a service day and I thought isn't that the coolest thing in the world because they are to, to, John, to Dr. Westover's point they are making you know the environment a better place and it also has this cross function of, of kind of helping the relationships in the company if I'm there with Jill and we're working together I get to know her and then I'm more likely to stay in my organization because I've got a friend at work Gallup actually did research years ago that said if you have a friend at work you're much more likely to stay so I don't know if that's what you were getting at but those sorts of dual things are wonderful and I think more and more companies are seeing virtue in that and and one thing that that I think we have to remember too is there's a difference between a, a company really being socially responsible versus the, what we call virtue signaling, right? So, so Apple is clearly a company that is doing all kinds of good things, right? A, a counterexample would be like Coca-Cola 
um, pulling out of, of Georgia because they said that the laws there were discriminatory. And then you go and look and see, well, what's the, the breakdown of employees at Coca-Cola? And there's almost no, you know, the, the, the percentage of African-Americans working at Coca-Cola is laughable, right? So, so you say here, here they're signaling this kind of thing, right? And, and then, you know, we look at certain kinds of things where I think it, it would be great for employees to say, I want to go work for Apple, right, because I believe in what Apple's mission is and the good things that they're doing, right? On the other hand, you have somebody who says, well, I, I, know, I love Disney. I want to go work at Disney. And then all of a sudden, Disney starts dipping into you know, the political process, right? So, so as you were mentioning, laws were enacted by legislators who were elected by the people that were there, and a company stepped in to try to take on the legislative process. And there were a lot of uh, Disney employees who said, hey, um, what Disney is saying does not represent what the majority of employees here actually feel. So, so that then you can be stuck at a place where you're like, they're pushing forward an agenda that doesn't actually match up with mine, right? So, so that's kind of the double-edged sword is when you take on a position, some people will be attracted and some people will not be. And if you already have a lot of employees, what do you, what do, you do when you say, well, you know, I need to go on the record even and tell people, like, I don't agree with what my company is doing because I don't think that, you know, they've, they've delved into an area that they shouldn't be in. You know, nobody has a problem with a company going out and building basketball courts in, you know, poor neighborhoods. Nobody has a problem with that. When somebody steps in and says, we want to influence the legislative process so that laws get passed because they're the laws that we like, that causes me a little bit of heartburn because we already have a process for that. We have voting and all that, so we don't need to have a separate process by which corporations are able to have that influence on things. So. Jill, Sylvia, do you want to respond to that? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say one last thing, which I think I forgot to mention when I was uh, speaking earlier. So I definitely think that this entire area, this corporate social responsibility area of an organization, this commitment, it should definitely be multidisciplinary. It can't be just focused on people. It also has to be focused on the supply chain, on finance, on product development. All of these areas need to be included, and I think that's the big challenge for organizations. How can we I don't want to say how can we make everybody happy because you're not going to be able to, but how can we be inclusive to to present ourselves as an organization that has a commitment to all of its stakeholders. So we can't just be committed to investors, to shareholders, because, yes, they are important, of course, because without that money, we're not going to be able to do anything. But without people, like I said earlier, we're not going to be able to do anything either. So all of these people, all of these stakeholders, they're all important to us. So that's why we need to find a solution that's inclusive of everyone here, of all, all of the areas. And if they're not um, inclusive, well, this is what happened. This is a, a, an example that I have. My husband runs. He, he works at Adobe, and he's a runner, and Adobe said, hey, we will pay for a, a, a run, a race for you guys. And so he didn't know. He didn't have any friends that ran that he knew of that were working at Adobe, so they did a really good job, and he found three friends, and like you were saying, you meet friends at work, basically. Anyway, he found three new friends, and he ran that race through Adobe. So they were not only doing, and he's also done 
um, work and service projects as well. But it's so good to hear these things about finding friends and finding interests. And uh, just as a kind of a nod to Adobe, because my husband works there, they're doing a lot towards that in all different kinds of areas to be inclusive and finding friends and finding a lot of groups. And I think as me and him are employees, I definitely am very, you know, I'm very um, concerned about that part of it. And so that's really interesting to me. Thank you. And Jill, we're going to come back to you. Um, and then we'll move to Dana. Uh, Dana, you've already talked a little bit about social mission and healthcare. Um, but I'll give you a chance to talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute. Um, Jill, you wanted to talk about fair wage. Um, so in your mind, what is a fair wage in our society? What goes into determining what that even looks like? What types of benefits should employees expect from the businesses they work for? Uh, and how might that connect with the current um, phenomenon that people have been talking about regarding quiet quitting, people recalibrating their, the effort that they put towards their work um, because perhaps they perceive that they're not being paid fairly or receiving the types of benefits they would want. So I am uh, teaching a, a CSR class, um, Individual Action um, in Business Ethics, basically. And one of our um, parts and uh, of our, um, one of our chapters is called, What Do employers owe employees. So this first came to mind, what is our corporate responsibility as the employer towards the employee? So I was thinking, okay, here we are in Utah. And I've seen, you know, four hire signs everywhere. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, they pay 14, 15. This is at, um, you know, different um, fast food places, 14, $15. That must be the fair wage, but is it the is it the the minimum wage? I don't know. I so I was doing all of this actually in order to school myself and find out more about it to see what the minimum wage was for Utah. Does anybody know on the panel? On the panel, <laughs> it is. He knows. Okay, so seven twenty-five. 725. I was pretty astounded actually that it was that that it's still that, but I guess what they're doing is talking about a fair wage. And where do we come with a fair wage? Where does that come from, really? And um so the um as we talk in our chapter, no reasonable person would dispute that employees are entitled to a fair wage, right? Nobody's going to dispute about that. But what is the calculation for a fair wage? That is a tricky question. How do we calculate? How do we know? Um, should So this is a question that is brought up in my um, in my textbook, and I have my students think about it. I'll have you guys think about it too. And the panel, here's a question. Um, should it be enough money to raise a family, or does it matter that the wage earner is a sole support of the family? 
We've got a lot of this in Utah. It really pays a lot of credence to what Utah is going through right now. So, first of all, it is $7.25 an hour. It's $15,080 a year if you're making $7.25 an hour. So what do you think about that, first of all? <laughs> Any? Oh, Dana's always here. Well, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I'll opine a little outside of the box. Um, you know, getting back to the, sort of the free market principles, if, if any of you were looking around at the job market now, how many of you would be tempted to take a $7.25 an hour job? I mean, I'm, I'm not thinking because most things are posted a little higher. So, you know, should we get worked up about the minimum wage? Maybe we would in, in a different labor market, but we're in one of the tightest labor markets we've had in many, many years. And so that you can see the free market. Everybody's just tripping over each other to raise to raise the wages and you can see the free market at work right now is working to the benefit of the employees employee. yeah yay. so yay that's a that's a that's a wonderful thing that was my only comment awesome okay then then i'll chime in here um i agree with dana first of all the free market principle applies here definitely um the problem is um what i see or what i see as a problem here is do companies have a responsibility to provide a fair wage? And what exactly is a fair wage, like raised by that question? Or is it really just driven by the market demand? As I, I've, I've mentioned this a little bit in my in, uh, when I was speaking earlier, that um, the competition for talent has been tough. So um, there's certain people, certain employees that are in high demand and that will who will definitely get a higher wage than others, right? So w companies have to offer more now than just a wage, which brings us back to the topic of this of this um, whole presentation here. How, how, how much else can we offer? How much else do we have to offer than just wage, right? So that is the question, and I guess I don't really, I'm not really answering your question. I'm just raising more questions, but yeah. <laughs> And, and perhaps another way to, to frame it is a living wage. People talk about paying a living wage, right? Um, what does it cost to survive, to pay rent in a housing market that's really tough, uh, to buy food for your family when inflation is going up and it's, it's already been tough? Um, I mean, we're, we're not going to provide the answer to that here today. <laughs> um, but these are, these are really, really, really important questions. Yeah, and John, so... so there's, there's kind of two perspectives you can do. So one is looking at it from the worker's perspective to say, should I be able to have a job that doesn't pay me enough, right? The other is looking from the business's perspective. So I have a job that I need somebody to do that provides, you know, $6 worth of value. So if I'm paying somebody seven twenty-five for a job that provides $6 worth of value, I'm losing money by... You know, so so at that point you start saying stuff like, "Why would I hire somebody? Maybe I can buy a machine that will do this or something." You know, so so that's the tricky thing. And, and I know when I started out, um, I worked a lot of really crappy jobs for really low pay um, because I needed to get experience and those kinds of things. And then you know I didn't have a family to take care of. I was a kid in high school, so I had those jobs. I built up my resume, and so I can get to the point where I am today, where I'm making a decent you know, amount of money. Well, if you all of a sudden tell somebody your only choice is to hire completely inexperienced people for a, a you know, high wage, then people are just not going to do that. And where are those jobs going to be for somebody who's brand new, never worked anywhere, just needs to learn basic 
job kinds of skills, the jobs aren't going to be there, right? So that's kind of the counterpoint is to say um, the, the idea isn't that every job should provide somebody with uh, a living wage because some people are going to be high school students or I'm a mom who wants to do something on my part-time just to make a little bit of extra money so that I can supplement, you know, groceries or I'm a dad who, you know, has a hobby or whatever it is. So I don't want to sound sexist here, but, um, you know, there's lots of different reasons why you might take a job where it's worth that small amount. And from a business perspective, I can't continue to pay for things that aren't providing me the value that I'm paying for them. You know, if you go to McDonald's, why do you think that McDonald's now have those kiosks for you to order from? Because it became cheaper to buy a piece of electronics than it would be to pay somebody to take your order. So those jobs have disappeared now because the pay has gone up and we're going to see more and more things replaced by technology because... Technology now has become cheaper than paying people higher wages. In concert with the uh, fair fair wage, what is the fair wage is also what is the fair benefits to, that goes with this. And in um, the textbook, um, they've divided women and men. And what I'm just kind of listing off what women view most is better health, dental and vision insurance. That is rates high for them as well as work from home options, that's a very high one. On both counts, both for men and women, more flexible hours is the next one, both for men and women. Um, unlimited vacation, especially for women, and then uh, more vacation time. Um, and then the fifth one down, one, two, three, four, is, or the sixth one down, paid maternity. So there is some very, important things to uh, both women and men in just the rank and file people across the the board in the United States. I'd also like to um, introduce the Chem Gardner Policy Institute came out with a report. This is from uh, the U, basically, Policy Institute on work-life balance preferences for Utah parents. Just came out this, this month. Um, Many parents or guardians would work more or change their job if they had supportive policies at work. They said wages and salary are important. They're important, but they're not the whole story. So they're looking for more. It's ranked as important, achieving the ideal work, and child care arrangements, especially in Utah. This is Utah-based. Child care arrangements by the greatest number of respondents, 86% percent okay but it comes sixth um or six percent in policies that would be most influential so um i've we have a whole and i can email you this report if you'd like to it's like a 50-page report on just work-life balance and how people are interested especially in a utah um, type of uh, situation as far as quiet quitters, we've got Gen Z and millennials here, and I actually, John was talking about them the other day, so again, I'm trying to learn more about it. And um, uh, I found out some from John and some of my students as well for quiet quitters. I probably have some kids and stepkids that are doing the same thing. So um, basically, uh, you probably know more about it than I do. I was reading some... Uh, scenarios about people who were 
quiet quitting. One woman in, I think she was in Maryland and then went back to New Jersey and just took two years off and she didn't quiet quit, she actually quit. And she was working at Ross, um, the clothes store. She quit that, went back, lived with her parents for two years and readjusted. Um, and not a quiet quitter, but basically that's what she was trying to do is get herself realigned with what she wanted to do. And so she got a certificate. Now she's back at work making double the amount. Um, it was a really good story, a good case study. Um, where, anyway, quiet quitters, the thing that I is, it's, and I guess, I, I'm not on TikTok, you guys, so. I know that all of my students, mo I, I should say a good portion of my students, because I ask them what's their favorite app, and probably three quarters of them say TikTok. So it was made viral this summer by a TikTok video, I guess. Um, so you'll have to tell me more about it. But um, it's basically saying that it's acting your wage. So I think I've done that in the past. I think maybe you did it when you had a crappy job, too. And we've just ch changed it to a different name now. Um, so I'll be interested when it comes to the, the questions and answers from you, Gen Z, and millennials about what quiet quitters, because they said, um, and it's been, uh, it was in Forbes. I have some Forbes um, articles and also gap. That'd be interesting. And then you've interviewed people too about it. Well, thank you. And, and quite quitting is a big topic in and of itself. Uh, Jeff, you had a quick comment? Yeah, just um, again, coming from a very different generation. So, so the, a, a book that my dad gave me was a book called Think and Grow Rich. And so the idea that they said in that book is like the only way that anybody's going to ever pay you more is if you provide more value to them before, right? So the danger of quiet quitting is if you adjust down your performance to what you're being paid, you're never going to get paid more. So that's just part of the way the world works yeah. is if you want more money, you got to provide more value for free before the company's right. going to come out and add that to and you. And the, right. uh, uh, one of these Forbes... Um, messages says these are the things you need to do as an employee to to do for your employer yeah. too but so. i mean i completely understand that's the justice you know if you're if you feel like you're being treated unfairly that's the natural thing is to yeah. back off of that thing but you just need to be aware that there's a downside to that and that nobody's ever going to pay you more money ahead of your performance and it's interesting in the traditional model of work and traditional work design that's true in the emerging, you know, the, the rise of the gig economy and freelance workers and contingent workforce, that's not so true anymore. Um, and so, you know, more and more uh, younger people in particular, but more and more people generally are opting in for um, doing gig work on the side. And if on the one hand, I feel like I'm being exploited and taken advantage of by my employer working 80 hours a week and they don't value me and they pass me over for promotions and blah, blah, blah. All the reasons why I might recalibrate and decide I'm going to pull back, you know, I'm going to pull back, do what I need to do to do my job decently. I'm going to work 40 hours and then I'm going to do a side hustle to earn more money and to spin up a business or something like that. Lots of people are doing that now, right? Yeah. Um, and we'll see how it turns out. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Um, yeah, go ahead, Dana. I was just going to say, I mean, there are, there are a lot of things that may look attractive right now while the economy is super hot and, and people can do all kinds of things. But when we get into a retraction, it's a different ballgame. So uh, those of us who were around um, working in 2008, 2009, uh, I, was, I thought maybe I was all that in a bag of chips in 2007 and uh, that I should be promoted and maybe have all these other opportunities. In 2009, if you were to ask me, I just said I'm grateful to have a job. I'm just happy to have work. Me too. So yeah. things can change very rapidly. They can. Yeah. Last question, and Dana, you've, you've already responded to this a bit in, uh, in your response to some of the other questions, um, but I just want to see if there's anything you want to add, uh, and then we'll open it up to audience questions. Um, what social mission do healthcare providers owe to society specifically, so the healthcare space, and how, how have you seen a, perhaps a hyper-focus on someone else's social responsibility goals uh, then becoming a distraction to the existing mission of an organization. How could we respond to that? Great. Thank you. So uh, the company, I worked for a company for 14 years, and this was the mission statement. Above all else, we are committed to the care and improvement of human life. I loved that mission statement. That was a mission statement I could go to work with every day and feel wonderful about. I didn't always feel good about, in practice, some of the things that were going on. But Healthcare has so many regulations. We talked about regulations, and, and so I wanted to use this as an example of where society has decided what the most important things are. Years ago, did you know that if you went to an emergency department, you could actually be turned away if you didn't have the ability to pay? So we decided that enough was enough as a society, and we legislated and created the EMTALA bill, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, which ensured that everybody could access medical care in the event that they had a threat to life or limb or they were in active labor. And so those things needed to be ruled out before you even asked for, you know, any form of payment. We decided that as a society. And so I think those things are really important where we as a society come together and say this is what individual corporations need to be doing to fulfill their missions. And um, I was quite comfortable that we had enough regulation. The American Hospital Association wrote a report showing the staggering amounts of regulation because one thing that Congress is very good at, if, if its constituencies complain enough, and people care very much about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I was sort of in the life end, and people very much want to regulate life. So we had all kinds of regulations that sometimes counteracted each other. Those regulations and just chasing the regulations as an administrator um, were incredibly time-intensive. In fact, the average hospital admission costs $1,200 in just the regulation fees. So if you were to admit it to the hospital, you pay $1,200 before you even get any care, treatment, whatever. That's just your regulation. So that was a very interesting study the American Hospital Association had. So I um, want to just you know, say that when we decide what we want. We want a corporation to focus on the mission that we're paying it to do. If it gets focused on everybody else's mission or the things that everybody else thinks it can do, you're, if you're an investor in that corporation, you want to return on that investment. But if they're chasing somebody else's goals all the time and focused on those other things, it can cost you on that return on investment. It may even cost you in the quality of the product. It can cost you in a lot of different ways. So when we talk about stakeholder um, stakeholder capitalism. We want to be careful 
that the stakeholders and everybody who says they should have a piece in this pie don't get in the way of the mission and whatever that fundamental mission is that you are um, investing in that you want to see a return on the investment. Jill, did you want to respond? I, yeah. Um, this is kind of a side note. So I am, as a lawyer, required to do some um, continuing legal ed, and this uh, last month we, have, uh, we had a doctor, a certified doctor, and he also went to law school. And he was um, presenting this CLE on the differences between health and uh, law. And he said it was so much so regulated versus the lawyers <laughs> regulated. I think it's because the lawyers have a lot to do with fending it <laughs> off. So that's just kind of an interesting side note that he uh, gave a perspective to that they are totally, he said, no, not at all, but yes, health. And he continues to uh, work as a, as a doctor, so he's got a lot of regulation as well. All right. Well, thank you to the panelists. And with that, uh, we want to open it up to questions from the audience. So feel free if you want to raise your hand. I think we have some people that are going to run around mics. And for the recording, if you can just make sure you talk into the mic, that way, um, the people watching the stream will be able to hear you well. Um, in the back first, and then we'll work our way up. Hello. Hello. Okay, so I kind of wanted to uh, push back on something that uh, Dr. Peterson said. By the way, dude, epic beard. <laughs> it's epic beard. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in 20... December 20, I retired after 27 years in the food service as an executive chef for 15 years. I have run kitchens. Um, I have hired and fired dozens of people, interviewed dozens of people. And when I was coming up, it was expected to work for free in order to get ahead of the competition. You would come in your shift two hours early, um, your, your scheduled time, and it was expected this. And... When I became an executive chef, I mean, I thought that was bullshit, you know? Like, why am I working for free? I have, you know. Um, but if you didn't, you'd lose out. You'd be gone. Um, so, I guess, when I became an executive chef, when I was starting, you know, when I was at my position, I, I kind of did not encourage that and, and actually kind of pushed back on that. So, you know, you, you were saying that, you know, you're going to have to push yourself and do extra work for free in order to get ahead, um, I, I think that needs to change. Um, I would, when I gave raises, it's like, all right, dude, you're doing great. I'm giving you some more money. Here's what you need to do to uh, to maintain that and to get you know. And they would generally, you know, I give them more responsibility at the same time. Anyway, I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah, and and I, I agree that I I wish that things could change, but but. You know, for example, one thing that we see like in HR is one, one of the things companies decided to do was to give people kind of like unlimited uh, time off, right? Because they thought, well, that would be great because people can take it as they need. Well, the research shows that people don't take hardly any of their time off because what happens if you take your time off? You fall behind somebody else and all of a sudden they get the promotion instead of you. And so it makes them look like we're very magnanimous because you can take as much time off as you want, only the reality is people who take time off are not going to move forward like people who don't. And so 
I, I wish I could come up with a solution for how that would work, but, but one of the things that becomes very frustrating is when people who perform better than other people don't get rewarded because that then discourages people from doing that. So it's this weird kind of thing where you don't want to ask people to work for free, but then again, somehow you have to be able to reward the people who give more than do others. And so it's a very complicated kind of thing that I don't know where it's going to be easy you know, to solve. So. See, that's kind of what I did. I wouldn't put that into the equation. Yeah. You know, and I wouldn't actually let them come in after a while. So let me, if I can just address that, at least from a, from a legal standpoint, too. I mean, what you're describing, if that had happened in my company, um, people would have been disciplined over having somebody come into their department off the clock. That, that wouldn't have gone on very long before somebody would have been dismissed because that would be an unfair labor practice. That would be totally against the law to, to have somebody not be paid. Kitchens are a whole different so. world. They yeah. really are. Well, <laughs> that's not cool. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I'll, I'll just... Uh, I, I didn't mean actually for, I mean, I mean to like just putting forth more effort in the hours, you know, that, so yeah. for free was probably a bad choice of words for that because yes, nobody should ever be working for free, but there's a difference between working hard versus doing the very minimum oh, to get sure. there. So, yeah. 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 Excellent. So I, I can say that maybe just in another way, if you don't mind, the advice that I got when I was starting my career was a little counterintuitive to me at that time because I wanted to be like, you know, I want to be paid what I'm worth. And this advisor to me who became a mentor was a multi, multi-millionaire. He said, huh. he said, always be worth more than what you're paid. If it's the opposite, you're on a very short leash. And that changed my perspective. And then I stopped worrying about what I was paid and just, you know, got to it. So I was always paid less than what I was worth. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're worth a lot. Thanks. <laughs> All right, we had another hand in the middle. Yeah, if we can pass that up. So um, in the, sorry, dark hair, white shirt, and then up here in the teal shirt, and then we'll come back to the middle. Um, I just wanted to talk as somebody who's just entered the workforce. Um, I lived in a very competitive area, like competitive when it came to wage, but I actually ended up working for only about $10 an hour, which is really, really low for the area. Um, I had friends that were making like $16 an hour, but I still felt like I was getting paid fairly because the job had really great benefits and I had a really great relationship with my boss. Um, and then I came down here and I started working at Chipotle and I quit after two weeks with no notice, <laughs> even though I was making $15 an hour because I felt like management was rude and I felt like I wasn't being supported there. Um, so I just wanted to offer that. And then also I had a question for Dr. Clark. You mentioned earlier that millennials or maybe millennial men, like 54% or something, said that they would work for a company that was more like socially aware. Do you think that that percentage is still true when it comes to actually action rather than just people saying that? Um, to be honest, I, I don't know. how. how I, I'm just citing research, so... Um, I think that uh, since since I'm not a millennial, I, mean, I belong to Generation X, so I think that it has definitely changed the focus of millennials, and now I see that in Generation C because I have children that are Gen C and who have a different um, awareness of what their social responsibility should be like and how they want to contribute to society. So I think it's 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 a work in progress. Like it's it's constantly changes. And I was talk to, talking to Dr. Peterson earlier about this before we got started here, is that what used to be socially acceptable 
or even legal is not acceptable anymore. Like discrimination, a hundred years ago, nobody cared, right? But now we do care. So this is constantly changing. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and just in response to that, when, and, and this, the data may have changed again because it's generations change, but it used to be that what the research would show is that people said everybody else is motivated by money but not me. But then when you look at people's job choices, more often than not, what you'd find is they would almost always take the better paying job, right? So, so there is a difference between what you say and what actually ends up happening because people often do end up making the financial choice even when it's not the best one. But I mean, I think most of us are here doing something we're doing now that pays us less than what we were making before because of those very things like you talked about, the benefits, you know, being a professor is actually a very cool job, right? So I've given up a lot to be able to, you know, do the things that I do. So, yeah, and I'll I'll just comment too on that. Um, with my Gen Z, I have I have Gen Z children, and um, my my old my oldest children are da my daughters, um, and they three of them all work, and it's been really interesting to see how this has played out for them. And I have my 16 year old daughter um, who recently she left a really great company in and out you know for a, a place to work they pay well um, they treat their employees well um, she had no quibble with the company or how she was managed or anything like that but she made an active choice to change uh, her job to switch from uh, that position where she's making I think 16 bucks an hour to switch to another job where she's making 1250 an hour and that was a purposeful decision um, for a variety of other reasons. So the reality is we're all a little bit different and unique and we have our own priorities. And, and so we can't take that for granted when we're leading people and managing in our teams. Uh, we just have to recognize, treat people well, treat people with dignity and respect, treat them well, pay them fairly and equitably. Uh, and then ultimately people will decide what matters most to them. And in the case of my 16 year old daughter, she decided even though she was working for a really good company, um, that she wanted something different, and that was fine. Um, right here. Yeah, my name's Ryan Hooley. Nice meeting you all. Nice to meet you. Um, so I have a couple of questions, but I have a film major, so all this is pretty new to me, but it's really interesting stuff. Um, so I just was working at Starbucks, and I guess I did do kind of the quiet quitting, not really giving as much notice. It was mostly because I had to be here at college. But I was noticing with like some one of you brought up like greenwashing. Um, I've noticed personally with a lot of companies that's the case. You know they say they're very environmentally friendly. You know, but in practice when you're at the job, most of the time, the majority of the time, I guess it could be more dependent on states. But here in Utah, a lot of the time that's not very true. Like even at Starbucks, we were throwing away plastic like every single day. You know, probably probably thousands of pounds of it. So I was just wondering, um, with companies, do you feel like greenwashing is in a more effective way with them to be able to increase their income rather than companies that don't do that? Like, which one do you feel is more effective? Well, I, I think if, if you're asking, are they getting away with it and is it adding to their bottom line, I wouldn't be qualified enough to, to do more than suppose that that's probably the case right now. Um, and if we 
want to get after it, you know, what we do is we go to our elected representatives and we try and legislate and get things done and and move for different regulations. And, and, and different states also, they you can reg- regulate things at the state level. You know, there are uh, certain states that are ahead of others, and that's the great thing about the country is that there are little laboratories, and if you legislate too hard in one area, you can see, oh, that didn't work over there, let's do something different. But I, I can't really do more than suppose that the answer is probably for a time people will get away with it and then that's the role often of the media to dig in find stories like that expose people and say yeah that they're not really who they say they are so be a good film (laughs) well and and that's uh, again greenwashing is one one version of uh, virtue signaling right so so a lot of companies will do things like that um, and sometimes that ends up, you know, actually hurting. So, like, for example, the NFL, um, you know, viewership for the NFL has tanked terribly. And they're, they're are pro- it's probably a very complex thing, right? But when people felt like the NFL became political or sports started to become political, there are a lot of people who just turned that off. I'm sure there are people who said, I'm going to support this more now because they're pushing forward this agenda that I, I agree with. But that's the danger when you instead of saying I'm offering you a great product at a good price, they're saying I'm offering you a great product at a good price, but I'm also preaching to you about certain kinds of things that then people say I don't really want to be preached to. I just want to get the product and make my choices on products based on the quality of the product, not on these side kinds of things. And and part of it is the companies then say, well, everybody else is saying we're green, so I'm going to say that we're green just because I don't want to be left out, and it becomes this pressure to conform with everybody else and sometimes they're not green but they have to say it because otherwise and most of us don't have the time to go and research to find out is Starbucks really green or not as long as they say you know environmentally friendly and the little thing on the packaging it's like oh they must they must be right so I'm sure they benefit from it even when they're not doing it but there's a question about whether it ultimately adds to their bottom line or it's just a way to like look at me you know so and going back to the recruiting I was talking about earlier, so you're the best example of um, an employee or a, a candidate, a potential candidate, who is aware of that, who is aware of greenwashing. And it's there are really a lot of people nowadays are aware of corporate greenwashing. It's, it's not a secret anymore. So what an organization can do, I mean, they need to provide specific pe- examples of what they do, right? They can't just say, look, we got recycling bins in our offices. That's just not good enough anymore. They have to provide more than the overall picture. They have to provide specific examples, hard facts, hard numbers, evidence to to uh, to get those people that they want. So this would be just an example for recruiting. Great. And I think we have time for one more quick question right here. Hi. Um, yeah, I was... I had a curiosity question. So, like, probably in, within the last year and a half, there's been a lot of uh, attempts to unionize. Um, attempts by Starbucks, attempts in Alabama by Amazon, and then the kind of corporations on high kind of put some very strong counter attempts to these union, unionizations. And where we used to have one of the highest unionized rates in the world in the between the 30s to probably the 70s and now it's dwindled down to less than 10 percent another way to say unionizing is collective bargaining right 
um, trying to regulate this relationship between the employer and the employee. Uh, where does it fall on corporate social responsibility of either intimidating people from not unionizing or trying to persuade them not to because it's ultimately against them? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's illegal to intimidate, <laughs> to not unionize, but there are forms of persuasion um, that are utilized. And just because it's illegal, it doesn't mean companies don't do it. <laughs> so that, that's a big, a big topic. Um, Dana, I know in your healthcare environment, you probably yeah. deal with this a lot. Yeah, I, I did. In fact, I, so I was the CEO um, over two different hospitals that were unionized. And so I dealt with the union, but it was all the time. It was very heavily regulated. So I almost couldn't ever talk about it. In fact, I had nurses that came up to me one day and said, how do we get rid of the union? And I said, I'm not allowed to even talk about that. But there was a certain frustration that they had. I mean, I could listen, but I generally would walk out of the room because I didn't want to be accused of anything. Um, but they, they were frustrated because their raises were always in lockstep. Whatever the collective bargaining agreement is, that's what the raise you get. The benefits that are, it's all, every same size fits all. And if you're comfortable with that as an employee or you feel like the company is, you know, taking advantage of you in some way and everybody gets together and says, you know, collectively we're going to go against the company and that's collective bargaining. But there are pieces to that that sometimes people say, well, this wasn't all that it was cracked up to be and they, they want to, you know, not have a union. So I, I'm taking the question, you know, almost that, you sort of like the union bend or are moving that way? or Well, yeah, and more I was just wondering kind of um, the responsibility on the corporation to, um, I don't know how to say it, basically like allow employees to do this versus like, yeah. Because if you ask any company, they're going to obviously it's it's against their interests, right? Right, and right, right. Are going to act in their self interest. Yeah, and they will. Um, as to the as to whether it's ethical or not, I mean, I don't know. It, it would be dependent upon the case, right? Um, there are probably some corporations I would look at and say, man, they need a union, and there are others that I would I would say, well, why don't they just take better care of those employees? You know, and those employees wouldn't want a union. Um, so I, I couldn't comment on the case specific, but I can comment on the reasons why we definitely needed those unions or we needed legislation. We needed a lot of something back in the back of the turn of the century before, you know, the 1900s. People were taken advantage of terribly. There were just horrible cases that you can read about in the history books where they needed representation and they needed laws to change. So two things happened, right? You, you know, you saw the rise of the collective bargaining, but you also saw laws that came into effect, fair labor laws, and then you minimum wages and all kinds of things. And so there are a lot of things as a, as a corporate leader, you educate yourself on the laws and you've always got your attorneys very closely and you make sure that you are following the labor laws in the United States. And for me, if I, if I was an executive of company, I want to be as close to my employees as possible without anybody in between. I want to hear from them personally what they want and I want to cater to them and I want to have that closeness. Um, and I want to follow the law, and I want, to, I want to do it well. But if employees don't feel like I'm taking care of them, they have every single right to get together and create a bargaining agreement. I don't know if that helped. Yeah, and you're required to let them. And you're required <laughs> is, to is, let them. Is the quick response to that. Yes. Um, we are out of time. I'll just close by saying, um, 
you know, I think this all, in my mind, it all boils down to treat people with dignity and respect, treat them well, treat them fairly and equitably, and it resolves a lot of the issues that you, t you tend to see. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this session. Thank you for your questions, and have a great rest of your day. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Monetizing digital services since 2004. Boosting the entertainment industry by making digital content accessible for everyone. AWG. Where innovation meets monetization.